And we're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 309, aka Year 7, Week 7, uh, coming at you this week. As always, I'm your host, Mr. Rich E. Rich, along with MC. And since, again, recording at an odd time because my schedule has taken a hit the, the, the past few weeks, uh, so no phone numbers this time, um, but hopefully recording at the normal time next week. So if you are listening to this prior to episode 310, um, don't call in because you don't call in anyway. So screw off, jackhole. Uh, not much going on this week. So I think we decided pre-show, we're just going to jump right into headlines and basically uh, cover some new angles for all the crap that we've already previously discussed over the co- past couple few weeks, right? Is that what we decided? Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Uh, so headline uh, from the Mises Institute, why the Capitol riot terrified the elite. And again, now we're calling it a riot, uh, not an insurrection. I guess we're walking back on some of the terminology there. Uh, I, a side, sidebar before I start reading the article, there was another headline that popped up that said like, you know, through all the investigations of the armed insurrection, like no firearms were actually found. So, or, <laughs> so it wasn't even an armed insurrection. All right. But why then did it terrify the elite? These days, it sure looks like they have them right where they want them. Using the storming of the Capitol building as a pretext, the media government alliance has targeted Trump, his supporters, and their fellow travelers harder than ever before. Many on the right consider the January 6th storming to have been a dream come true for the leftist elite, giving them the ability to impeach Trump again, de-platform right-wingers, and weaponize the Justice Department against the establishment's foes. Everything, though, may not be as it first seems. There's no reason to be despondent or worry what the left has sealed its ultimate victory. It has done no such thing. Rather, the storming, for what it's worth, proved the power of ragtag populists and exposed the elite's shaky foundation. There's a reason they're so terrified. What happened? In political discourse, narratives are everything, so quite predictably, there's heated dispute over what actually happened on January 6th. One pressing question is, how did the Stormers manage to actually break into the Capitol, one of the most heavily guarded buildings in the world? Cell phones and social media allowed civilian attendants to document the day's events, which has made some details clearer and others a bit murkier. From freelance journalist Marcus de Paula, One particularly bizarre video emerged, which appeared to show Capitol Police willingly remove barricades to allow rioters inside the building's complex. In response to the footage, many leftists contend that the storming was an attempted coup, an inside job planned by Republican politicians and Capitol Hill officials to reinstall Trump for a second term. Of course, that's nothing more than baseless media drivel. Uh, had it been an actual coup, the storming would have been far bloodier and better orchestrated, with rogue military units and politicians leading the charge. But nothing like that happened. On the other hand, after seeing the questionable footage, many right-wingers have alleged that the event was a false flag arranged by Antifa provocateurs to defame Trump and his supporters. To the credit of this theory, at least one far-left activist was arrested in connection with the storming, However, it's not clear that Antifa had any role in drumming up the crowd's furor. Certainly, the anti-elitist spirit was strong enough on its own. Strange as the video was, there's a third potential explanation expounded by PolitiFact. Many officers had to abandon their posts and barricades 
because they were far outnumbered and overwhelmed. Marcus de Paula, who shot the footage, floated the same explanation as did former Capitol Police Chief Terrence Gaynor. The police's limited manpower was no match for the immensity of the Trumpian mob, leaving the officers in fear for their own safety and their post strategically indefensible. A panoply of additional on-the-ground footage reveals the brutish tactics many of the rioters used to gain access to the building. They openly ripped away barricades, scaled walls, broke windows and doors, and once inside, used their collective force to push back the officers who tried to hold the line. If nothing else, this shows in physical terms how frustrated the populist right has become with the federal establishment. As is true of most mass spontaneous action, these stormers seem to have had different reasons for doing what they did. Some may have hoped to interrupt the Senate session and pressure lawmakers into blocking some of Biden's electoral votes. Others likely stormed the building as an act of anti-establishment desecration whipped up by the rage of other rioters. Apparently, there was also a small group of extremists who called for Mike Pence's execution, according to reports. Indeed, the stormers were a far from perfect lot, but aside from a couple of crazies here and there, they were driven by an opposition to the federal establishment shared by millions of Americans. The people hold the power. After five years of shameless anti-Trump witch hunts, culminating in an election fraught with vote irregularities, the events of January 6th should be little surprise. When legal political methods of seeking redress from the state becomes unresponsive, there is no longer any choice but to seek extra-legal, non-political methods. Trump himself understands this. In one of his final tweets before being suspended, he wrote, These are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly and unfairly treated for so long. These tensions, in fact, existed long before the Trump era. Disheartened by decades of increasing federal abuse, these people stood up in an anti-swamp rebellion aiming to take back the people's house. This reflects an immutable principle of government outlined by the 16th century French libertarian Etienne de la Boissy. The inhabitants themselves permit or rather bring about their own sub subjection, since by ceasing to submit, they would put an end to their servitude. It may appear that the states hold power over the people, but in reality, the converse is true. It is the people, en bloc, who by choosing to obey or not obey, hold ultimate power over the state. The only way a state can enforce its law at all is if the people overall acquiesce to it. If sufficient widespread political resistance would disrupt the status quo to such a degree as to render its function completely ineffectual, in the final analysis, it is the people who hold the power. A catalyst for more resistance. After stirring up a great deal of chaos, the Capitol stormers were flushed out of the building over a course of a few hours, and the riots outside were broken up. Early the next morning, Congress certified the electoral vote count, vote count for Joe Biden, and the following weeks were flooded by the prosecution of more than 200 stormers. Does that mean that their resistance failed? In the short term, yes. In the long term, maybe not. As Murray Rothbard said about the French May 68 protest, whether it fizzles or triumphs, it gives the lie once and for all to the widespread myth that revolutions, whether or not desirable, are simply impossible in their modern, complex, highly technological world. By storming the Capitol, the rioters proved that successful resistance against the American le Leviathan is indeed still possible. 
Clearly, the right populace have both the numbers and willpower necessary to significantly disrupt the federal order, and their zeal is unlikely to dissipate anytime soon. Therefore, the question of another revolt is not one of if, but where and when. This reality was clear right after the storming occurred. In anticipation of riots during President Biden's inauguration, 26,000 Army and Air National Guard troops were deployed to Washington, D.C., and razor wire fencing was set up around the Capitol building. The day passed by without any incident, yet thousands of National Guardsmen are still set to remain in D.C. through mid-March or longer, and the acting chief of the Capitol Police has called for the fencing to stay up permanently. As Rothbard observed in Volume 1 of Conceived in Liberty, political resistance is not is not effect neutral, but actually has an augmentative effect uh, on the actions of other partisans. If cherished in later traditions, a revolution will decrease the awe in which the, cons- the constituted authority is held by the populace, and in the way that increase the chance of a later revolt against tyranny. That is to say that even a foiled resistance plot can help attract more people to the fold of dissent if the rebels have some cultural sway. Plans to pack the Supreme Court, unleash restrictive gun control, and prosecute right-wingers rather than signifying the elite's final triumph may serve to further rally the populist dissenters, hitting the state where it hurts. When the rioters began their push to breach the Capitol building, lawmakers were forced to shelter in place before then evacuating to a secure location. For some of them, the day's events were evidently traumatic. That can be seen in the hyperbolic language that's been used to describe the storming, like Chuck Schumer liken it to Pearl Harbor. The stormers crushed the threshold of the establishment's cushy elitism and exposed lawmakers to the real-world ire their actions create. As described in a passage from Cato's letters, the only secret in forming a free government is to make the interest of governors and the governor and the governed the same. Angry populists who watched federal decrees wreak havoc on their lives turned around and gave lawmakers a taste of their own medicine. In the wake of this, the media government alliance has clamped down against the populist right harder than ever before. Yet in this vicious pushback, one can sense a prescient hint of panic within establishment ranks that the threads of their dominance may be finally unraveling. Far from playing a domineering role, the establishment politicals find themselves on the defensive in a politically unstable position. Someday, whether it be in one week or 30 years, the U.S. could face a serious period of mass anti-establishment demonstrations. If that day comes, it'll signal the Washington elite's ultimate failure. With no cards left to play, they may be forced to tread lightly on the right-wing populace and avoid violent confrontation as much as possible for fear of repercussions like those of January 6th. This may force their hand into granting the right some concessions, perhaps some very big ones, like a return to more states' rights, or better yet, the right of unilateral secession. This would short-circuit the federal order and help restore America's overtaxed and overburdened some of their long-withheld freedoms. With everything in view, it looks like the journey down this path may have already begun. End of the article. So a lot of recap there on what happens. Uh, but the author seems to hint that a uh, revolution in some kind might be right around the corner. Uh, since we're, oh, you know, we're just about two months out from these, from the events of January 6th, when we're recording this, uh, what do you think MC? Are we, are we headed down that road or is things kind of stabilized I, in your mind where there's, they're back? I don't on think track? we're heading down that road. I think, uh, 
it it was another another case of over overstating what happened and overblowing it and um you think the article overstated what happened yeah yeah okay or or you know trying to relate it to something that could happen in the future it's like to me if you look at the 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 emotions and the rationale behind the people who uh, went into the building it it was um it was not that big of a deal and and it was probably it was surprising to them that they even got as far as they did so it's yeah it was it was not an armed insurrection so <laughs> yeah well and again they you know they this article called it a riot I, that right. may that may be a more accurate term sure. um on on this show i've likened it kind of you know um uh, to you know some much minor more minor experiences that i've had uh as a youth where you know you're you're surprised to get as far as you did and then you don't know what to do next and then bad shit happens right like my my example before was like you know chasing my much faster cousin around with a lit sparkler for new years right like the threat to touch him but knowing full well i was never going to catch up to him uh, until i did and then what do you do <laughs> kind of stuck in a rock and a hard place there man so got him um (laughs) and i can't you know it's it's a much larger scale i get that but i think the the mentality and the sentiment is the same like we're gonna go down to the capitol building we're gonna protest we're gonna fucking they're gonna tell them what fur um and then push me up some you know something gets out of hand and go like holy shit they just took down the barricades holy shit they're like they're letting us in and so like you push forward because what else are you gonna do you know um, and, and they got as far as they did. And then, you know, I don't know. It's like capture the flag, man. Once, once you have the podium, <laughs> the only thing left to do is like call game over and go home, I guess. I don't know. So <laughs> like we, we took the laptop, the podium, and we sat in the chair. Like we win, we win, you know, game over. You guys surrendered. We win this round. Um, I still like the, um, all the fucking the pro Trump conspiracy theories. Like we're, uh, we're recording this after it was supposed to have happened. Uh, but earlier this week, there was, you know, an article popped up that said like, you know, uh, capital capital on high alert again, uh, because QAnon was planning another Trump inauguration, right? Like the day, the day is coming. You know, this is like the beginning of the month. The day is coming for Trump to get reinstated. Um, and then, you know, now that we're recording a few days later, it, it came and it went and the, the QAnon people are once again left with like egg on their face. Um, but I think they're like pushing it back out. So like the new date is like March 21st or something like that. That's the official uh, Trump inauguration date, you know, but what well, it did is stupid. Of course, it's <laughs> stupid, <not> happening. <laughs> but but you got to there's like some cognitive dissonance going on right like they they're they're so they're so vested in not losing this election and have been since november you have to be careful what you say by they because um there's there is a lot of stupid people out there but the vast majority of people uh don't really care anymore Um, well i the they is the the q followers and the people that are are vested in this like i'm not saying what i think is funny is is that I think the article was kind of about the the elites being afraid, and 
and I think it's just a big joke to like make them afraid of nothing and just to you know show how stupid they are. <laughs> sure. Like, well, yeah, I, but the, I brought the, up the, the QAnon the morons thing. Le- leading the the morons. <laughs> right. But I I brought up the QAnon thing because you know they were they were getting set to send the National Guard home, right? And all of a sudden QAnon goes Trump's getting inaugurated, Jan- you know March fourth or whatever <laughs> or third. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, National Guard can't go home because we're we're expecting <laughs> another insurrection, you know. So I don't know. Yeah, another non-event. Anyway, uh, right. Well, it turned out to be a non-event, but then you go, okay, so we're going to send the National Guard home. Oh, but wait, the real event's March twenty-first or whatever. So now they now they got to wait there another two weeks with their you know spoiled food and you know stomach illnesses and whatever. Yeah, but they'll just keep repeating that every month understood but and but but what i guess the tie into the article is they'll keep repeating it either because they actually are afraid right which is why the capital is surrounded by national guards and razor wire um or you know which might be more in line with what you're thinking mc is um they're just using these uh non-events as a pretext to maintain that level of power and control but either way they maintain that why because they're afraid i guess i don't know you don't think they're a little scared and that's why they they're keeping the, the security <laughs> no I, I i believe they're afraid and i okay. believe they're that that dumb to be afraid of q QAnon. okay all right fair enough um real quick we are now joined by ks uh a little little late but better late than never welcome aloha <laughs> so we can move on uh in the articles but i will give you the floor for a moment ks uh is there anything going on in your world this week that was pressing that you wanted to to bring to the table? No, no, I'm uh, just uh, joining in on what what pops up. Thanks. All right. Anything else from UMC that I'm going to move on to the next headline here? Move on. All right. So this one kind of ties in from reason uh, because all of a sudden there's domestic terrorists everywhere. A headline: New law against domestic terrorism are unnecessary and dangerous. Uh, Violent acts are already legal and new tools will inevitably be used against those who annoy the powerful. There is no crisis, real or imagined, that government officials don't see as an opportunity to expand their authority and hurt their enemies. America's ongoing political tensions, which erupted on January 6th at the Capitol riot, have become an excuse for spurring the latest campaign against domestic terrorism. But violent acts, it should be noted, are already illegal under existing law. New anti-terrorism tools will inevitably be deployed against those who annoy whoever is currently in office. I never expected that when I returned to the Justice Department to be sworn in on my first day as acting Deputy Attorney General, that to get into the building, I would have to pass through numerous checkpoints under escort of armed agents in a city under a lockdown. I never expected to have to walk through the Department of Justice hallway filled with hundreds of soldiers positioned to protect the department from terrorists, acting Deputy Attorney General John Carlin huffed during a February 26 briefing. We must make it known that the Department of Justice is prioritizing the detention, the disruption, and the deterrence of the threat of domestic terrorism and violent extremism in all its forms. That Carlin's statement came just days after Brian O'Hare, president of the FBI's agent association, called for formally making domestic terrorism a federal crime provides ample evidence that those work in government see an opportunity to extend their reach and build in some job security. 
what could improve the prospects for such a law than the aftermath of a lethal outburst of frightened lawmakers. Sure enough, a proposed bill, the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act of 2021, would do the job. Following the terrifying attack on the Capitol this month, which left five dead and many injured, the entire nation has been seized by the potential threat of more terrorist attacks in Washington and around the country, says sponsor Rep. Brad Schneider. Unlike after 9-11, the threat that reared its ugly head on January 6th is from domestic terror groups and extremists, often racially motivated violent individuals. America must become vigilant to combat those radicalized to violence, and the Domestic Terror Prevention Act gives our government the tools to identify, monitor, and thwart their illegal activities. But there is little evidence that new legislation targeting domestic terrorism is needed at all. The FBI already had the, has the authority it needs to investigate and prosecute perpetrators of white nationalist violence, Faisal Patel of the Brennan Center for Justice pointed out during a 2019 push for such legislation. Congress has enacted 51 federal crimes of terrorism that apply to entirely domestic acts and further prohibited material support towards the commission of these violent crimes. Even advocates of domestic terrorism laws admit the point. To be clear, it is not that there are inadequate criminal statutes on the books, concedes former acting assistant attorney general for national security, Mary B. McCord. With regards to the Capitol riot, she admits that even though there is not a crime called terrorism that applies to this, this would certainly fit within the definition of crimes intended to intimidate or coerce and influence a policy through intimidation or coercion. But McCord complains that existing laws against ideologically fueled violence fails to equate it under federal law, and it des- as it deserves to be equated with the actions of ISIS-inspired terrorists who engage in violence in pursuit of their equally insidious goals. So the point of a new law is apparently to send a message, but it's a message that comes at a high cost. Throughout its history, the FBI has used its authority to investigate and monitor political protesters and civil rights activists, Brian Senators uh, Patel added. The overwhelming tendency in domestic anti-terrorism has been to use invasive and unconstitutional surveillance techniques to criminalize legitimate dissent, agrees former Senator Russ Feingold, who was the only member of the upper chamber to vote against the subsequently much-abused Patriot Act in 2001. This history was a basis for the recent statement by 135 civil rights and civil liberties organizations, including the American Civil Liberties Union and Amnesty International and the NAACP, in opposition to any new domestic terrorism laws. I am proud to echo their call. The potential for weaponizing efforts against domestic terrorism was illustrated when then-Attorney General Bill Barr insisted during last summer's riots that the violence instigated and carried out by Antifa and other similar groups in connection with the rioting in domestic terrorism and promised federal intervention, often over objections of state and local officials. Since then, the, since then of course, political fortunes have rever- reversed and the White House is now held by Democrat President Joe Biden. Instead of left-wing radicals who troubled Barr, Schneider's bill called out white supremacists and neo-Nazis. In their statements, Schneider and his allies troubling troubling broadened their concerns, warning of vaguely defined extremists. This This is an issue that all Democrats, Republicans, independents, libertarians should be extremely concerned about, especially because we don't have to guess about where this goes or how. This ends, cautions former Rep. Tulsi Gabbard, 
she calls the proposed domestic terrorism bill a very dangerous undermining our civil liberties, our freedoms and our constitution, and a targeting of almost half of the country. Which half of the country is targeted will depend on who wields the authority to battle domestic terrorism. Elections come and go, but laws remain to be turned by those in office against whoever is out of favor. And if terrorists can't be found to justify expanded powers, perhaps they'll be made. Indeed, in some cases, the Federal Bureau of Investigations may have created terrorists out of law-abiding individuals by conducting sting operations that facilitated or invented the target's willingness to act. Human Rights Watch reported in 2014 of existing laws against terrorism. All of this to target acts that even advocates of new laws admit are already illegal under existing legislation. The United States doesn't need more laws against domestic terrorism. It needs to prosecute those who violently attack others to respect the free speech rights of people who anger the powerful and to reject government officials' self-serving calls for job security. Uh, end of the article. So is this just uh, grandstanding, the the old uh, line of something must be done and this is something, therefore we must do it? Um, or is there something more insidious? to these calls for more laws. Your thoughts? Um, well, I think they always want to uh, be able to use name calling as a way to uh, make people guilty of something. And so if they say, you're a terrorist, then they can arrest you and take your rights away or whatever. So I'm reminded like yeah. of the uh, arrest of um, Bernard Van Nothaus, who produced the Liberty Dollar backed by gold and silver. What say you, Rich? <laughs> and he was charged with uh, domestic terrorism. You know, uh, the, the same kind of, you know, outlandish labeling is something that gets um, a lot of people scared and nervous about, well, what, what, what violence did he per perpetrate? Well, he didn't. <laughs> he just printed gold and silver uh, barter coins, and, and he got charged with domestic terrorism. Well, I think, okay. I have, I'm a big fan of the Liberty dollar. Uh, I still have some of the silver rounds that he was circulating. Um, and I think part of me understands that what he did was not domestic, domestic terrorism. Um, and I, I know that he was not counterfeiting where I think he went afoul of, uh, common decency was the, the mechanism by which he instructed users of the Liberty dollar to begin their circulation, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I, yeah, tell me. Okay. So he's, when you want, when, in order to get the Liberty dollar into circulation, he had a technique of what he called the drop, right? So you have this silver round of, you know, let's most, I, the ones I got are stamped at like $50. Most of them ended up being at like the $20 mark. And so you go, you know, go to the store and your, your total is like, you know, 15 bucks. Right. And then the cashier, or the, the cashier holds out their hand for the money and you have your silver round, your Liberty dollar stamped at 20 and you drop it into their hand. And the cashier takes a look at it and goes, Oh, 20, huh? Fuck. I, this is neat. I've never seen this before and hands you back $5 in change in federal reserve notes. Right. Mm. And then they try to cash out at the end of the night or the, you know, the boss sees it, or they try to take it to the bank for deposit. And the bank goes, this isn't real money, you know, <laughs> but that was, you know, that was, um, that was the way that he, it was instructed, um, to get it into circulation because it was the least likely way of people questioning what it is. You know what I mean? Mm. 
And so when he was charged with um, counterfeiting, I think that was, that played a role because, you know, if, if it wasn't counterfeit, you wouldn't have to do this drop technique, right? You would just, you would just barter, right? Hey, I've got this round of silver stamped at $20. You know, will you take this for this $15 item and give me back change? Um, it, it would be, it would be more of a fair negotiation between agreeable parties rather than what was being described as taking advantage of one party who may not know what they're possessing. Okay. I, that's an interesting aspect. I never uh, really thought about that before. And that's a good, good point. Um, I guess I'm still a fan reason, of the Liberty dollar, by the way, love that thing way ahead yeah, of its time. Uh, my reason for mentioning it though, was just because they, they called it a case of domestic terrorism. And of course, then instead of just, you know, questioning his techniques or maybe fraud or, or one thing or another, uh, to label it terrorism uh, sounds like a very uh, dramatic and threatening act to society. And uh, that, of course, is the same kind of label they're putting on to more and more things if they want to. Uh, I guess what you're referring to from that article was the, was violence, uh, terrorism by violence. And here is terrorism simply by, you know, um, uh, verbiage with regard to this this coin or lack of verbiage that's why you know there was there was no like there's no no verbiage at all just drop it in their hand and see if they take it if they take it great you got one more into circulation sort of right the interesting thing about that though it seems to me that wasn't the 50 dollars that they were handing over if it was in uh backed by gold and silver wasn't it worth more than $50 of the Federal Reserve note. I mean, no, actually less. So, uh, the, the way the structure, the way the, the, the coinage was structured, um, and I may not get this perfectly correct. Um, there were thresholds like when silver, when one ounce of silver, uh, was spot priced at over $20, like somewhere between, you know, 20 and some odd dollars, and the moving average kept it at that rate for over a couple of months, the newly minted Liberty dollars would be stamped at 50. And you had to, you had to pay uh, over spot to acquire these Liberty dollars and then spend the round. Like, you know, like I said, my Liberty dollars are stamped at 50, you know, MSRP $50, right? Like for the, mm-hmm. for the full ounce of silver and mm-hmm. silver hasn't been $50. You know, I mean, it, it like fucking kissed it once, um, over a decade ago, but it's, it's nowhere near that. So you were, you were, you were spending these above the spot value of the melted metal. So when, you know, so when silver was like 10 or $11, that's when he was circulating all these $20, uh, $20 rounds. Hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. I suppose that's why Ron Paul too objected to his a face being put on those coins because he felt like it was um, a, a kind of fraud. I don't know what Ron Paul's reason was, but yeah, I could see it. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it has to be stamped at more, right? Otherwise there's no incentive to spend it. Mm-hmm. Right. Why, if it was, it was, if, if the, if, if silver was $20 an ounce, right. And you were forced to circulate this round uh, at, at face value 15, no one would circulate it. Right the, to to get it into circulation, it was stamped higher than the spot value to to make it money. Mm. 
you would get more value than the melt metal out of it if you continue to circulate it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, domestic domestic terrorism or domestic terrorist, uh, he was not. Um, but I I personally I think he could have avoided all of those charges uh, with a more ethical form of distribution. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they, they took issue to the, you know, uh, you know, real money says, you know, in God, we trust and Bernard yours says trust in God. And that is too goddamn close <laughs> for our, like, that was it. That was part of the trial. That was, you know, one of the reasons they, they said it was counterfeit, you know, mm. it, it, he made it appear to be too much like, uh, American money, you know, but was minting it himself. Mm. So, yeah, again, not not disparaging Bernard or the Liberty Dollar at all. Big fan all the way around. Um, but he also, you know, he had a tendency to poke the bear and, you know, in, in common parlance, fuck around, find out, you know, mm-hmm. like there, you know, there's there's still a bunch of people circulating metals of, uh, you know, of a, a variety of metals to this day. But you do it in private barter. Um, there's a, a gentleman here. Um, and you can check this out too, because, and he's selling it for well above the spot price, and you know even the manufacturer's price if you bought it straight from the manufacturer. Um, but he's got silver cards, um, one ounce of you know nine 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 fine silver, pressed into the size of a credit card, so it slips into your wallet where your credit cards would go, and that's going to be you know tradable in some form or fashion within the community of anyone who takes silver. Hmm. And, you know, so I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, he, you know, you can, there's, there, there's the manufacturer stamped on, um, the manufacturer stamped on the, on the card itself. And I don't know, what's the, do you, do you happen to know the spot price of silver offhand? No, I don't. Okay. Right. I have to look it up. Give me a second to, to look this up. But anyway, I, you know, whatever the, uh, silver currently spot price is, you know, just a, a hair over $25 an ounce. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you, you can go to the, the manufacturer's site and get these for like spot plus a percentage uh, that, you know, goes down the higher the quantity you get. Right. Well, this particular gentleman on, you know, his, his social media post selling these is like $39 a card. Well, that's fucking 50% over spot, man. You know, <laughs> like that's an exorbitant markup. You know, for something that, you know, I, I don't think it has his like special brand on it. He's just, he's buying it in bulk from the distributor and sending it out to make money. And when you trade it, what do you trade it for? You know, if, if you paid, if you paid, you know, 40 bucks for one of his cards, right. And you go like, Hey, how much, you know, for, for that, you know, for that item. And the dude goes like, yeah, 25 bucks, but I take silver and silver's 25 bucks an ounce right now. And I have, you know, so one ounce of silver will do. Are you going to like spend your $40 silver card for this $25 item because you have to spend it at spot for people who are bartering? I would answer no. I don't know how you guys feel. So you have to, so, so in order to circulate it and not just have it as a collector's item, you have to stamp it at more, right? If he's selling it for 40 for whatever reason, and it's stamped at 40 for whatever reason, right? Then it would be assumed that people who accept that particular brand of precious metals would accept it for that face value. Otherwise there's no point. There's no, there's no reason to circulate. You just hold it and then you have the melt value. 
And it would Got still it. make sense at that point then <laughs> to just get, you know, silver in whatever form or fashion you can at the cheapest, you know, percent over spot price that you can so that if you do barter it with it, um, you're getting the best value for it. The other thing that just came out here, um, are you, have you, either of you guys heard of the goldbacks? No. No? Nope. Nope. Okay. So the goldback um, is a paper currency that is chemically pressed. I don't know how better to describe it uh, unless you read it, but it's chemically pressed, infused, and locked in um, with, uh, with gold. So the one, the, the, you know, the, the, the gold back marked one, right, is one one thousandth of an ounce of gold, like pressed into that thing. You, you can melt it down and you would have one one thousandth of an ounce of gold. Uh, you get a thousand of those and you have one ounce of gold, right? Well, what is, what is the current, I'll pull it up again. What is the current spot price of gold? Uh, $1,700, roughly $1,700 for an ounce of gold right? So you've got this one one thousandth of an ounce of gold piece of paper, right? Well, the MSRP on that is like three bucks. And, uh, and that's the MSRP. The dealers take their markup. So you can't even get one for less than, you know, um, four, four, four bucks, four fifty, right? But if you spend it and you have to spend it at one one thousandth of an ounce of gold, uh, it's, it's a buck seventy. Like that doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? So that's what I'm saying. Um, but they, they had like, they started in Utah because Utah, uh, made precious metals, legal currency in Utah. Uh, there's a Nevada one and the New Hampshire one just got released. Right. So now, now, you know, the, the gold back and the people who, you know, prefer gold backs are going to begin circulating gold backs, uh, with as New Hampshire currency of some kind, not legal, uh, as mandated by the state, but definitely a barter tool within the community. Um, if people pay attention, you know, to, to how much it's worth and how much, you know, the markup is like, um, the, you, you can get a full set. They go like increments one, five, 10, 20, and 50, I think. And the cheapest I found the full set, which was like, you know, 91 thousandths of an ounce of, of gold, um, was like, you know, 315, 320 bucks. Right. Like again, like a 50% markup over the, the spot metal price. If you, if you wanted to use gold and just wanted to get that much gold, you know, the spot price, you're paying like 50% markup. So you can't, you know, it's, it fails as a currency. If you're only looking at the value of the metal, as opposed to some sort of stamp price, um, et cetera. That was a long winded explanation, but it's, I'm just saying it's, you know, are we going to be domestic terrorists? If we, you know, if we start transacting in gold backs amongst the community, would you take a gold back for payment for anything? Like, do you want gold in your portfolio that way? Shall we just move on? I'd rather have crypto. Which is also there. <laughs> okay. And, but the, the same thing happens with crypto, right? Like, are you going to, are you going to spend your crypto um, for less than, you know, for, for, for less than the, the, you know, current uh, face value of it? Like, you know, I, I don't want to use Bitcoin because the price is way too goddamn high. Right. But if someone goes like, no, I take Bitcoin for that. Um, are you going to give them like one and a half Bitcoin for something valued at only one Bitcoin right now with the 50% mark, you know, 50% markup? But I don't know. No, I, I think uh, Bitcoin's easy enough to find uh, a value that both parties would accept. 
so you don't have to be locked into anything. Okay. Yeah, and and again, you could say the same. You could say the same for you know gold and silver. Um, it just gets difficult if the if the way to acquire that requires such a high price, right? Like if if I paid four bucks for a gold back now, right? The only time I would you know get value spending that gold back is if someone were to take it uh, at four bucks or more. Right. If, if they went like, oh, this is, you know, this is a ten dollar, you know, five, let's say five. Let's say this is a five dollar item. I go, will you take one gold back? Right. And then I'll make money and then they'll have to hold it until it goes over five or they, they can barter it for something over five. So who knows? Moving on. Moving on. Okay. The case for deregulated Texas power grid. So this is another one that's, you know, was in the news uh, the last couple of weeks when Texas froze over. Uh, and the, the deregulated power grid took a hit, uh, in, in, in the media, uh, because the prices skyrocketed to, to such a point where it was, eh, I don't know, seemed unfair, but also what people agreed to. So who knows? Um, so this, this is from the American Institute for Economic Research. They're making the case, uh, for the deregulated Texas power grid. After the widespread power outages in Texas, reputable publications, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today, blamed deregulation for the electrical grid's failure. What's the alternative to deregulation? Uh, California, in stark contrast to Texas's system, instituted a public-private monopoly of the electric grid with the California Independent System Operator following blackouts and attempts to deregulate in the late 1990s. High temperatures and increased demand in the early 2000s led to controlled rolling blackouts under California's deregulated grid. The same occurred as recently as the summer of 2020 with California's state-run grid, as the New York Times acknowledges. Poor planning left left California short of electricity in a heat wave. Still, writers at the Times insisted that Texas's drive for energy independence set it up for disaster. Success of Texas's deregulation. Other than extraordinary circumstances, Texas's deregulated system has in fact lowered prices, increased competition, and improved service for Texans. Following passage of the bipartisan Texas Senate Bill 7 in 1999, the energy sector was deregulated deregulated by unbundling each of the three stages of electricity, uh, three stages of electricity provisioning generation providers, transmission owners, and retail companies. Competition at each stage of the energy provision process has resulted in low energy prices in Texas of 8.28 cents per kilowatt hour for all sectors in 2019 compared to the national average of that same year of 10.6 cents per kilowatt hour. Texans paid 28% less per kilowatt hour than the average American in 2019. Even the writers of the Times article critiquing Texas's deregulation admits that Texas's current system works outside of the rare instance of supply shock. Mr. Bush's prediction of a lower cost power generally came true and the dream of a free market electrical grid worked reasonably well most of the time in large part because Texas had so much cheap natural gas as well as abundant wind to power renewable energy. To reverse course on a policy that makes electricity cheap and accessible to those who might otherwise not be able to afford it defies good sense. Moreover, the skyrocketing demand on the grid produced by the freezing temperatures threatened to cause a total blackout, 
which Bill Magnus, president and chief executive of the Electric Reliability Council of, of Texas, ERCOT, explained to the Times would mean talking about how many months it might be before you get your power back. Price gouging is an appropriate response to supply shock. While ERCOT should be and has been criticized for not doing in-person checkups of power plants, as documented by NBC, their policy of rolling blackouts coupled with the price hikes by electric companies reduced the quantity of electricity demanded such that the entire grid didn't collapse indefinitely. Many non-economists denounce sellers raising the price of goods and services following a calamity or any other reason for a leftward shift in supply as price gouging. As Donald Boudreau points out in his article, uh, New Light on Price Gouging, sellers are only able to raise the price to that level at which buyers are willing to purchase the commodity for. The process is entirely a two-way street. And so, if modern-day witch hunters insist on persecuting those whose actions cause plywood prices to soar, they should fling at buyers' fury no less fierce than it's the fury that they fling at sellers. Yet seldom, if ever, do these witch hunters give evidence that they understand the role played by buyers in setting prices. To be sure, there are some highly publicized cases of exorbitant billings that strike people as unjust. To the indignation of many, the New York Times reported his light stayed on during Texas's storm. Now he owes $16,752. In the piece, Mr. Upshaw described his multi-thousand dollar electric bill as not a cost that any reasonable person would have to pay for five days of intermittent electric service being used at the bare minimum. Mr. Upshaw is absolutely right, provided a normal supply of electricity. However, given its drastically reduced supply, electricity was allocated to those who valued it the most. Gritty, the variable rate electricity supplier, did not avail itself of an asymmetry of information between itself and its customers regarding the income rate hike due to the storm, but quote, encouraged all of its customers, about 29,000 people, to switch to another provider when the storm arrived. It's politically expedient to blame an increase in prices on evil, greedy capitalists rather than acknowledge that the consumers is equally responsible and the whole process is actually an efficient and fair way to allocate resources in times of extreme scarcity and soaring demand. Not only do laws forbidding price gouging do nothing to increase the supply and access to whoever good is being demanded, they artificially dissuade entry into the market, i.e. they perpetuate the shortage by destroying the incentive for new firms to enter the market by imposing an effective price ceiling. Government control of utilities. To delegate control of utilities to the public sector presupposes no risk to ceding control of utilities to the state. Had the electric utilities been run by the state in this crisis, their response could not have been better, considering the external factors of inclement weather, icy roads, and frozen oil wells. In fact, the Times author states the very same. Entire energy infrastructure was walked with glacial temperatures that even under the strongest of regulations might have frozen gas wells and downed power lines. Government officials are susceptible to political pressures which might encourage them to not initiate controlled blackouts on their voters, leading to a wholesale collapse of the entire grid for months. California has been struggling with its outdated crumbling electrical infrastructure, especially amidst increased demand for power during the summer months and wildfires. Even worse, when the government controls utilities, it can engage in dystopian behavior and exhibited, as exhibited in California towards their, those ne'er-do-wells, those so-called super-spreader teens who had their water and power shut down following their deigning to engage in unsanctioned, non-essential gatherings in L.A. 
A government-run electrical grid might not raise prices in time of crisis, but unless it has some mystical ability to conjure energy ex nihilo, I don't know what that means, it will have to decide, either arbitrarily or upon some other discriminatory criterion, whose power gets shut off first, last, or let the whole state go dark to avoid claims of unfairness. Deregulation has been good for Texas residents by providing them with competitive low prices. When the Texas grid failed recently, it was due to extrinsic circumstances that an expensive and heavily regulated grid would have similarly struggled to handle. In fact, in the excuse me, in the face of demand surges and supply shocks, a government-run grid would still have to decide whose power gets shut off, lest the entire grid be allowed to collapse completely. While ERCOT failed in not inspecting the grid in person due to concerns over the coronavirus, its response to issue-controlled rolling blackouts was rational and imperative to returning power to the state in under a week rather than weeks or months. Calls to increase regulation do not consider the cost and benefit of such political action. What happened in Texas was nearly unprecedented. Markets learned from outlier events such as this one. Institutions and individuals will adapt in light of new perceptions of weather exigencies and risks. This is the major advantage of any deregulation market. It is adaptive. The same cannot be said for any system of regulated state control. Uh, MC, in the past, you have uh, been critical of the use of wind power during this. Any any new take on on the Texas topic in light of this article? Uh, no, I'll have to read it again and do some more research on, on how Texas does their power and, and how the state subsidies and stuff uh, affected that. Uh, one thing I want to uh, touch on then was they, they mentioned the, um, the, the buyer's role uh, in this price shock um, and how you know they, they, the, they were told to find a new provider uh, when the, when the storm rolled in, um, I want to say that's, uh, uh, maybe a little misleading, uh, in, in the wake of the article, because I don't know how many people will have, would have agreed to pay the price that they, you know, received on the, their bill. If they had known it was going to be that high from the start, right there, it was, you know, it was probably some, somewhere in the agreement of variable pricing. Uh, depending on supply, um, but yeah, if 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 if, if you would say up front, well, you can have a, intermittent power during this storm, but it's going to cost you sixteen thousand seven hundred and fifty-two dollars. I I, I kind of see the point where a reasonable person wouldn't would not agree to that. And in the middle of a of a disaster, right? I don't know how you can you know convince twenty nine thousand people to switch to another provider, you know, immediately, right? Like, ah, no, we, you know, storms rolling in. We told, we told you to, to shop around and find a new energy provider for the next few weeks. Like that's, that's, I want to say undue blame on the buyers. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't find that to be entirely fair. Any comments on that aspect? Well, I, I mean, I don't know how many, how many other energy providers do they have a choice of? I, I really don't know. Well, I mean, it, it doesn't say how many they had, but how many, how many would he, would they need to have had for you to say that that's a fair statement to make? Like if they had a hundred energy providers where no, everyone I mean, just, was just, in crisis, just just one one more energy provider would probably be sufficient. Okay, so hear hear this hear this out. Then you know you you get your energy delivered however it is delivered to your place, right? A storm rolls in and freezes everything, and 
you think that that energy that that energy provider is going to have like staff available to take you know twenty nine thousand phone calls in a day of people looking to switch their provider? No. Yeah. So I th- I think people tried to switch their provider. Uh, some people were probably smart, but couldn't. Right. The, the, the it was a it was an emergency and a time of crisis. Um, not the time, you know, not the time where switching energy providers is. I think the, a better question is if you got a bill for $16,700, would you pay it? (laughs) You know, it's like (laughs) at some point you're like, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not paying this. (laughs) Yeah. Let them take me to court and, uh, see what happens then. (laughs) That's also fair. Right. I, I think a lot of that would have to be arbitrated outside of court uh but if you you know depending on how principled of a stance you want to take right if, if you signed up with this energy company and you saw that in the contract there was um you know variable rates in times of crisis and you thought that unlikely to happen i will take my chances well may, then you're on the ask, for it. let me ask a question about this uh when I was visiting a friend in Vienna, Austria, I, I asked him, well, how's your electricity company? He says, what? I get, I get a choice of eight different companies. I said, really? Yeah, eight different companies to choose from. And he can choose on the basis of price or how friendly they are, or what their source of uh, energy is. Uh, there's a, a multitude of choices uh, there. And I'm, I don't know exactly what the structure of the, the situation. I know that you, but I'm not entirely clear. Uh, you said that they unbundled different sections, the generation, the distribution, and the retail of it. But now, by unbundling the retail, were there a multitude of choices that were available in the market uh, to choose from? You could choose uh, to take electricity company A, or tomorrow you say, well, I'm going to sell that one, and I'm, I'm going to drop that one, and I'm going to have a switch over to company B instead. Was it that kind of thing or were they still having franchises from the state mandating territorial zones? I think it's the former based on the way the article reads. Uh, I like I asked MC, I don't know how many there were. Um, let's presume it's the former, right? That you could just call up another electricity company and go like, I'm with you now. Um, does that, does that change any of your thoughts on this situation? Well, you were talking about if they're choices. Uh, I mean, what is the alternative? If you don't want that electric company, then do you go to another one? Yeah, presumably um, you have dozens a, of other on options. A, on a somewhat related issue, you know, in California, there's a friend of mine named Mark Beecham who wrote an essay um, about how it is that for years and years, because they had a, a monopoly franchise and required everybody to um, to sign up to that if they wanted electricity in California. That meant that for decades, you had an absence of all the competitive incentives for generating your own electricity and having your own solar panels and for your house in the, in the countryside. And a lot of these market mechanisms were forbidden for years. Like I, I find in Hawaii, the fact that they've outlawed competition with the bus for something like 70 years that means that there's been 70 years in absence of all those innovations that could have occurred in the over the decades so i don't know the full situation in texas i'm wondering if they're even though they say it's free market i wonder if it really is free market or if they just have 
you know, a, a couple more competitors that are still tightly controlled and regulated by the state. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to answer that, but we can, we can make assumptions and extrapolate the discussion from there. Right. So let's, let's assume there's dozens of other retail providers, you know, you signed up with this one. Um, the storm rolls in your provider goes, you should probably switch companies right about now, but it's in the middle of a crisis, you know, where, where the power is already in and out, you know, the storm rolls in, everything freezes over. Um, I don't know if it's reasonable to, you know, to, to assume that switching energy providers would be all that quick if it had to be done in the middle of the, of an energy crisis. That's my position. But also, it seems to me that a clear statement of, well, if the price is going up, that you have to be informed that the price is, you know, soaring. Right. Uh, and that at some point, then people make a judgment, well, okay, now I can't afford it. I mean, I, I really need power because I'm freezing in my house and the water pipes are breaking and, and it's flooded the, you know, the, the living room. I mean, there are reasons where some people may be more desperate than others. Uh, not having the choice of having it at all is not a better choice. <laughs> it's zero choice, you know, even if it, um, so, but, but being informed of that price is very critical to that decision-making process. If they weren't informed of it, if they were just said, well, the price will go up, but it seems to, but the numbers that they're citing here are $16,000 or something like that for a day's uh, electricity, it seems out of the park of ballpark of reasonableness. I agree with you. Most people would not expect that. I agree with you. If they're informed of it, if they're informed, then that's a different matter. Well, okay. At what point do they have to be informed though? Because if they signed up, if they went with, you know, this particular energy provider because they were lower than the others, but had this variable pricing in place, right? Where some, you know, um, uh, for example, friend of the show um, had a property in Nevada and you know I I might be misrecalling this or whatever but water is a scarce uh, and valuable resource in Nevada so I remember you know we were discussing his like water bill for this property and the water bill was like $400 a month and I went whoa that's outrageous like I can't imagine ever paying $400 a month for water um, to put it into perspective, you know, our portion of the water bill in our apartment here in New Hampshire is like 20 to 30 bucks a month. I don't know what it is in Hawaii. Like, what do you guys pay for water? Just, can you ballpark it? A uh, hundred or 200 a month, something like okay. that. Okay. Yeah. So significantly less for us here in the apartment, significantly more for this Nevada one. The catch to the Nevada pricing was you have to pick either flat rate pricing or variable pricing. And the flat rate pricing is 400 a month. So that's, that's your bill. It will always be your bill. Um, the variable pricing depends on availability and use at different parts of the year, right? So when you, you know, in the summer months when it's hot and like need a lot more water, uh, your water bill might be ex ex enormously higher than the $400 a month. Um, and then, you know, in the cooler months, you know, when you don't have to water the grass or whatever, it's significantly less. Um, and then you play this balancing game where, well, over the course of 12 months, how much am I going to be spending on this? And so to tie it back into this Texas situation, right? You go like, well, there's variable pricing. However, 
I believe that for most circumstances, I'm going to be paying less than the average, right? The average is 8.28 cents. I might be paying seven cents per kilowatt hour by going with this variable pricing plan. Um, but in that contract, you know, says, you know, it doesn't say what you're going to be paying, right? But says variable, right? When in, in times of crisis, when there is less supply, you pay more, right? And in this case, the you pay more is, you know, 16, that was $16,752. Um, which I, again, I agree sounds unreasonable, but you were informed at the time that you signed the contract. Not only are you informed at the time you signed the contract, right? You were then told by the electric company, like, Hey, this bill's going to get really high. We don't know how high, cause it's, it's a crisis. You should probably look for another provider and you go, well, it can't be that much higher. I'll take my chances. Or you call the other providers and no one's answering the phone because it's a, it's a weather crisis, right? <laughs> It's like how many businesses, like you're, you're in Hawaii, you almost had a tsunami, right? Or a hurricane. How many businesses are open, you know, once they go like hurricane's going to hit, everything's locked down, right? Evacuate. Tsunami's coming, everyone evacuate, right? Are you going to be able to call the, if you had more than one, are you, would you be able to call the power company and go like, I think this is going to be bad. I think I want to go with a competitor now, right? That doesn't, that also doesn't seem reasonable to me, even if there's dozens of them, which where I'm, I'm presuming there is for the sake of the argument. So I guess my, you know, all that to say, like, at what point do you have to be notified of this variable pricing scheme? Who knows? Anyway, moving on. (laughs) Well, you want to take a shot, KS? Because, I mean, you brought it up. No, no, no. I I don't know enough about this. Okay. And again, we're, we, we make assumptions to extrapolate the discussion. So you don't, you don't have to know factually what happened. Right. But I've, I've laid out a scenario that, you know, if it were this way, how would you react? Well, a, a lot of what happens in the marketplaces is in anticipation of crises and problems that can go wrong. I mean, if you're an insurance company, you know, you've got to, um, that's part of your business. That's part of your sales pitch to other people. We're prepared when the crisis hits. The other guys aren't. Or we're better prepared than they are. Uh, yeah. So I would say that that's all part of the competitive incentives in the marketplace that are certainly not available when the government has a monopoly and can force people to pay for it. Yeah. So I would say that under, under this system, even though I, even though I agree that it seems unreasonable, I would say based on, you know, the facts as they are presented, these people are on the hook for those bills, right? Cause they, they did not plan ahead. They stayed with their provider They when the, when the storm rolled in, they were advised to switch whether or not they could, um, and in order to not die, right, they turn the heat on or the lights or whatever. Like the market value for electricity went up to 16, you know, $16,752 for whatever amount they used. And that's, you know, that's what the market price that their providers could attain was. They're, they owe it. I think it's unreasonable, personally. Okay. Yeah. I mean, as far as we know, yes. Uh, the, the unknown is, um, is it truly market phenomena or were there still interventions that prevented um you know other players in the marketplace to offer alternatives i i just don't know enough about it to to know whether that okay i mean i suspect that the government still had a role in in interfering with the market even though they say it's the market i i don't really uh, accept that at face value that it was uh truly a market phenomena yes and there is a newsweek article maybe go ahead no, 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 go ahead. 
there is a Newsweek article, um, like we covered this a little bit on Free Talk Live, and I remember reading the article, and then a caller called in, and you know, like you know, Dad, this is the failure of the whatever, and I was like, well, here's this other article, and then I have to look it up during the break. So I think it's a, it's a Newsweek article. It's worth looking into. Um, that basically that basically said that this this uh, ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, which I presume to be some sort of government oversight agency, or there was another government oversight agency involved that told them they had to raise the price, right? They said that there's not going to be enough electricity to go around. We see the shortage coming. Uh, you must raise your price. So what the, the energy companies, I don't know if they, if they had to raise it to this, you know, exorbitant price of 17,000, you know, 16, $16,752. Uh, but they, they were instructed to raise their price uh, because of the coming shortage, right? Like, you know, uh, part of what we covered with MC before was the, the failure of the wind turbines, right? Like, froze over. Trying to generate with wind. Fucking wind turbines don't spin because it's iced over. Too bad, so sad. You know, there, there goes, you know, there goes more supply down the drain because, hey, that's what you were counting on. Um. I made the case at the time that I don't, you, you know, you, we can have the discussion on whether or not you believe in wind energy uh, or whether or not it's economically efficient. Um, but I don't think you make, I don't think you make these decisions based off the emergency extenuating circumstance, right? If you, if you, if you say that, you know, we believe in wind power cause it's more efficient, cost effective, um, and we can save people money, uh, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time, then by all means do it. Right. I don't, you know, you don't. You Was don't... there any mention of whether or not insurance companies are uh, obliged to cover that as part of the the, the damage to the house? Um, I didn't read anything about the insurance companies at all because presumably, not getting electricity, there's no damage to the house. Like, how would, what would that claim even look like? Well, I mean, for my house, I have an umbrella policy that's supposed to cover all kinds of of liability issues or there's flooding you know that that can do damage to a house uh, okay you know wind uh, and you know if if they could claim well the weather led to the bar going out and therefore you know, the domino fell and, and the next thing happened so you know i would i would bet that a you know some good lawyers in this case or would try to make the case that um all the pipes that burst in the house and caused all the water damage was a consequence of um, weather conditions that are covered by the policy. Yeah, I I think those and, cases and, are going and, to come and, up. Well, but then also, um, I'm wondering if the liability then would cover an electricity bill. I don't know. I'm just uh, speculating that. Um, I'm guessing that any good insurance company in the future is going to be considering that as a competitive edge in the future. Ah, oh, this happened. So we're going to sell policies now that uh, will cover uh, extraordinary costs that relate to weather conditions. Okay. I, I bet uh, uh, farmers do, you know, they, they have to put out, uh, they know that when bad weather comes in, they have to put out the heaters and fans and everything over their crops to prevent uh, their crops being wiped out. And I'll bet that they have um, insurance policies where they can afford it to to cover these emergencies. Yeah, no, I I hear you. I I if if insurance policies were in effect to cover that, 
um, sure, file you file a claim with your insurance company. I just I've never heard of an insurance policy where it's like my electric bill was too high. Uh, you guys are now on the hook because because you said you'd cover. You know, pipes bursting. That's one thing, right? Um, it's you know generally my understanding that a lot of acts of God, right, aren't covered. Like, eh, who who could have known, right? Uh, arson, fine, but lightning strike. Eh, so sorry, act of God. And weather related usually falls into that act of God scenario. So I don't even know if, you know, if, if it is covered, I don't know how many people would have that level of coverage. Um, maybe the burst water pipes, I could see that, um, as related to the storm, but a high electric bill, I'm, I'm less inclined to, uh, to consider that as, you know, I'm, I'm also less inclined to think that insurance companies would offer that in the future. Like, why would you? Like the whole point of insurance is, you know, is to not pay out the claim. That's the only way they make money. So you're going to add, you're going to add stuff to your policy with like, you know, proven damage. Like if we ever get hit by another storm of the century, we got your back. Well, I don't exactly agree that the purpose of the insurance policy is not to pay out the claim. Um, I'd say that a lot of claims are paid because people get what they're contracting for. They're trying to reduce their risk and spread the risk uh, among a broad range of people. That was the original purpose for insurance starting up. And uh, I, yeah, there are sure, surely some policy companies that that angle that way. But I think that in the marketplace they get also a bad reputation, and people uh, like a good reputation. They sure they choose companies that um, that do pay out. I mean, I've received a payment for for my car insurance and. And the, you know, the company was really quite happy to do it because they know that I'll stay with them and I'll spread the word. Hey, get uh, understood. Get my my point with insurance companies is it's when you when you think about, um, like the a normal business model, right? You you make money by providing a service, and the only way that insurance companies make money is by not providing that service. Right. Unless you make the claim that the service they provide is peace of mind, in which case you're not paying for the payout. You're paying for the peace of mind of, you know, the potential payout later. And because of that, insurance companies are usually incentivized as the profit motive goes to find a reason to not pay out the claim unless they're absolutely feet to the fire have to do so. Right. That's why they perform their thorough investigation beyond what needs to be investigated and what, which, and why, uh, news stories pops up about people not getting their payout, right? Because of some extenuating circumstance that the insurance company found to not pay out, right? Like the, the business model is backwards for insurance than it is for every other industry. The only way they make money is by not paying out. If they had to pay out on every claim, there, there would not be enough money in the funds to cover the claims. Final thoughts? No. <laughs> All right. That'll do it then. Uh, thank you very much for listening, everybody. You guys know where to find us. Anarchistexperience.com on Telegram, t.me slash anarchistexperience or t.me slash the anarchist experience. And if you'd like to contribute to the show financially, you can do so through Patreon, patreon.com slash the anarchist experience. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll talk to you all next week. Peace. Aloha.